But I think the hardest thing for me was the day that the doctor told her, Natalie, this disease is going to take your life. And to watch her literally just pull her hands up to her face and just burst into tears. Oh man, she must have been, gosh, 12 years old, I think. And my oldest daughter got into the car. I had just talked to her gymnastics instructor who had relayed to me that my daughter wasn't ready to graduate to the next level of gymnastics, something my daughter wanted so badly and had been working so hard for. And I remember her putting her hands over her face and I remember her beginning to cry. And here I talked to Kathy, a fellow parent, who has the same scene in her hand uh, in her head a daughter that put her hands over her face and began to cry and yet it was because she was told that she would eventually lose her fight with cancer and as a fellow parent i can't help but to share in that grief even if it's just a little bit because obviously i didn't walk through that And I don't know how that feels, but as a fellow parent, you just can't help but to entertain. What if that was me? How would I handle that? What would that feel like? And I don't ever want to know what that feels like. But this is also a story of hope, as you'll hear Kathy recount the intimate involvement of her creator in the very fabric of this story from beginning to end and currently in Kathy's life, God's still at work years after the passing of her daughter. Why do I have episodes like this? Well, because pain and suffering is a part of the greater narrative of humanity. People have experienced pain that we cannot even imagine. And it's often easier to avoid talking about this sort of thing. It's also easier to avoid people with these stories. But I don't want to do that. And so I open this up as an opportunity for potential folks who have had suffered similar losses to potentially be offered some hope and hearing another story. But I also offer this to our listeners as just a a time of letting our minds wrap around the fact that there is pain, like I said, that we can't even imagine. And I also want to tribute to Natalie, a beautiful young girl whose life was cut way short. And yet while she was on this earth, had such a beautiful life that is still being impactful to today. So we tribute to Natalie, we tribute to her family, and we want to thank Kathy, her mother, for sharing this story and also writing a book that offers hope to many. So here is Kathy Yokely's story of her journey of losing a child and the hope that God provided throughout. And so I just want to, you know, I'm, I'm 
looking. F- well, I say this loosely. I'm 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 very happy to have you on the show, and it's also I'm sure going to be very heavy. But I just want to start by asking for someone who's been in my shoes that I'm in right now with having kids and them being totally healthy and also now wearing the shoes that that you're wearing now having lost a child is there any good that comes out of me putting myself in someone's shoes like you is there any good that comes out of that <laughs> well the the good news is that it's also a hopeful story yeah so let me back up about 10 years back up before is, is, yep yep so about 10 years before Natalie was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. My son, I had just started working for myself, and so I had a lot of flexibility, and my son had just started kindergarten. And there was a lady that was on the PTA with us, and she had just been, or she had been diagnosed with a rare form of breast cancer, and she had just passed away. Yeah. And I'm having this little wrestling match with the Lord saying, you know what, Lord, I don't know if I could do that. You know, she's leaving a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a husband behind. And her last words to her dad were, walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah. So I go through this for about three days, and I finally landed in a place where I felt like, okay, God, I could do that. But I don't know if my faith could sustain losing a child. Right. But my children were healthy. At the time, right. Will was, you know, in the in kindergarten. Natalie was about a year and a half, so I just kind of pushed that into the back of my mind. And give us a give us a, a ballpark. How long ago is this? Is this ten years, twenty years? Ago? Well, Natalie passed away twelve years ago, so this would have been okay. about twenty two years ago. Okay. okay. So we're moving along, and one of the commitments that I made to the Lord is when I start you know, working from home, have a little more flexibility. I'm going to get involved in a mother's prayer group, going to spend more time in some Bible study. So one of the first Bible studies that I took was something called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And one of the things that really stood out in that study for me was that he said that if you could view any circumstance in your life with the cross as the backdrop where God's love was settled for you once and forever, then you'll be okay. So I sort of bank that in the back of my mind. Don't really see how all these things are connecting, right? But time is progressing. Right. Join a mother's prayer group. Start um, praying for my children, not only for you know their physical, emotional, mental, spiritual well-being, but friends, good choices, etc. And one of the right. things I start, the Lord starts teaching me through that is, Kathy, your children don't belong to you. Your children oh, belong. That's a hard one. Mm-hmm. Your children belong to me. You're their earthly steward, and then I have given them in your care, and Tom's care, and your job is to teach them to love the Lord. Right. And you teach them the foundational principles, and then they get to a certain age, they choose that for themselves. So time is continuing to progress, and then I go to a spiritual retreat that's for women, and it's a 72-hour retreat. You put away your phones and everything. And I go to a special communion service And it's a thing where you go up and you put a piece of bread, you stand in front of a cross, put a piece of bread in there, give up what's ever between you and the Lord, and then you take your seat. And each person does that, then they throw the bread out, all that's gone, right? You start afresh. So I, being the controlling person that I am, I'm sitting there in my seat, and I'm like, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk up there, and I'm going to tell the Lord that I'm going to give up having to be in control of everything in my life. 
So I'm watching what's going on here, and I see that, you know, by body language, you can tell there's some pretty heavy stuff going on up at the cross. So you can imagine my surprise when I walk up there and I stand, and I'm overcome with emotion. I have never felt the presence of the Lord that strongly before. And I said, Lord, help me give up the fear of something happening to one of my children. And I just was like, where in the world did that come from? And I just started to sob and I took my seat and I sat there. And so I tell you all of this because all of those things were happening over a 10 year period. Right. So that the day that my daughter was diagnosed with cancer, which was, we got the official notice on February 15th, 2008. And I sat in that room and I listened to that oncologist tell me that the only thing that was running through my mind was, I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. Wow. Well, so you feel like God was preparing you for that? Yes. Did Did you feel? Do you think that you were less less surprised because of what you have undergone the last ten years? No, I don't. I wasn't less surprised. It was still surreal and devastating. Right. But I was better prepared for it. Because I had I had allowed the Lord, I had been open to His voice, I had been open to His teaching, and I had been dialoguing with Him. He pulled my fear out into the light and started showing me things like, you know, don't worry about anything. You know, worry doesn't change anything. That questions right. my sovereignty. So all of those teachings over that decade had me in a spot where I could say, I don't understand it, I don't like it, but I'm okay with it. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder, like I, I legit wonder if I, if, if my fears of losing a child, if they are a little more than average or more than what they should be because I'm, because of how I'm wired up. Like I think some people have a tendency to worry more. And I guess as a parent, that is your worst nightmare. I don't know what is, what's, off limits in this discussion. If I ever ask something, you're like, yeah, I don't want to go. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you wrote a book on your experiences. So pretty much everything is on the table. So not my plans when God allows a parent's worst fear to come true. You've, you've kind of recounted the moment you were told, like, did it, did it be, did it register right away? Did it take a while to sink in? And I'm curious, like, how long did you wait to tell Natalie and how did she respond? All right. Well, Natalie had her well checkup, her 12-year-old well checkup in November. So if you can imagine what that felt like to find out in February that your child has a tumor that spans from her T2 to her T12 of her thoracic spine. So basically eaten up. Um to go from there being no indication three months prior to it's inoperable and it's the largest we've ever seen was it's, it's sort of hard to even put into words how you feel about that because the things that start going through your mind, what did I miss? Was there something there that I should have seen? I remember the first day of, of radiology. I asked the uh, radiologist, how long do you think this has been here? He said probably 12 to 18 months. So there's a little bit of that going on, but then you have to step back and say, okay, Kathy, 
the Lord obviously allowed this to manifest itself when it did for a purpose. So you can't you can't go back into the what ifs, what could have been, what you should have seen. This is what it is. And it actually started in, she went on a youth ski trip and came home in January and just couldn't go to the bathroom. She was constipated. Took her to the doctor, just says probably, um, and her back was aching a little bit. He's probably the book bag she carries, you know, lots of heavy books in it. You know, that was back before they had iPads. So, right. you know, just take her somewhere that or makes her go to the bathroom. So, I mean, a show Mars shrimp dinner did the trick, and we thought everything was okay. About two weeks later, I took a, she um, she wanted to go see a uh, Hannah Montana movie. And so I took her friend, and after the movie was over, she said, Mom, my, my left leg and my butt feels tingly. And I thought, well, she's been sitting for two hours, right? You know, you sit right. and sometimes it falls asleep. So it wasn't until the next day that we were at the mall and we were shopping for some jeans and she fell behind. So I had to put my arm around her and literally help her walk out to the car. And that's when I got home, I told Tom, we got to take her back to the doctor. Something's not right. So on February 11th, the next day, took her to the doctor. It was a pediatrician in our practice that we had not normally seen. And he told her to bend over and touch her toes, and she couldn't. And so he told us, well, it was probably scoliosis, or it may be your sciatic nerve. We'll schedule an MRI for later in the week. So it caught us off guard that evening when we got a phone call from the doctor, and he said, this has been bothering me all day. So I reached out to a neurologist friend, and she said, bring her in for an emergency MRI this evening. So took her in for that, and that's when they came in after midnight and said, there's a mass in her back. So two days later, it was February 13th, the neurosurgeon went in and um, it was in her spinal cord. It was a spinal cord cancer. So he went in and cut an incision, and he came out, and he said, do you know what tapioca pudding is? We're like, yes. And he said, it's like tapioca pudding magnified a million times in there. He said, normally I can differentiate between the tumor and the spinal cord, and I can take it out. And he goes, I I I took just enough to get a sample so we could do the biopsy. He said, I, 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 I can't, it's inoperable. So that's unsettling because, you know, you'd like to think, okay, there's this thing growing in my child's body, get it out, get it out, and you can't. So they said, all right, it'll be two days. So that was the longest two days of our lives, but Valentine's Day was in there, and she, you know, really wanted things to be normal, so she made some Valentines for her friends at school. She was in sixth grade. So she was aware of what you guys were waiting for? Yes. Well, she knew that there was something wrong. She didn't know, I don't know that she had thought about cancer. So we went in, Tom and I were pulled in with the oncologist and the family life specialist at two o'clock that Friday, and we were told that she had had what's known as an anaplastic astrocytoma, that it was a grade three. Um, grade threes and four are malignant. They said, we believe it's a grade four, but we couldn't get a big enough sample, and it doesn't matter because we're going to treat it the same way. So he said, you know, best case, this is going to be a chronic illness and because we can't operate on it, and the worst case is it's, it could be terminal. So I literally, at that point, that's when I was having the conversation, I trust you, Lord, but I literally felt like I was in that room and I was floating above myself, looking down, like having almost like an out-of-body experience, like this is not real. 
So the family life specialist um, asked, "Do you would you like me to go with you to tell Natalie? And we thought that would be a good plan because there might be questions she would have that we wouldn't know how to answer. So as we made our way back to the hospital room, and there are things like that that you look back, like I've never had anybody to have a biopsy before. Like it wasn't normal for me to think, well, why are we still in the hospital when she had a biopsy? Why didn't they just send us home, right? So we've been in the hospital all week. So we go into her hospital room. Everybody clears the room because they know where we've been, and they can tell by the look on our faces that it's probably not good news. And so Sharon helped us tell her, and, you know, she started to cry. And the interesting thing was what seemed to distress her the most was the thought of losing her hair. Um, But she was a 12-year-old girl. So Sharon told, you know, assured her there are just great wigs out there now. You don't need to worry about that. So she found out the same day we did, within an hour, and um, we took her home the next morning, and that's when she kicked into survivor mode, and it was, we were on the path from that point on for nine and a half months. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Natalie, just the kind of person she was and her personality and what she liked. Well, Natalie, Natalie was um, my introverted one. She was shy. Um, She was my strong-willed one. You know, she, I remember when the kids were little and I, the doctor said, if you want to wean Will off a pacifier, just cut the tip off. So I cut the tip off and give it to Will, puts it in his mouth, doesn't suction, tosses it. I give it to Natalie when it's her turn, cut the tip off, give it to her, and she puts it in her mouth and goes... And gets that thing to, to move. So right. she she had that kind of personality where she she knew how to get things done. But she was funny. She had the the best wit. Um, she was very kind. She you know I one of my neighbors was telling me you know or reminded me that when her son was starting kindergarten and Natalie was in the fourth grade he was afraid to ride the bus and Natalie took him under her wing and said you know don't worry you sit here with me and her friends in throughout elementary and middle school they said she was wise beyond her years that the things that she you know she would tell them things like you know you don't need to fit in just be you and so she she was kind, but she and she was shy. But around people that she knew, she was opinionated. Like she would tell you what she was thinking. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely want to get into a lot of the hope stuff. I do want to ask: Was there a hardest part of the process, like when it came to finding out, seeing her? go through what she went through in her last days or saying goodbye forever? Like, was there a a part of all that where you say this, this was the worst? I mean, I would assume it was when she passed away. Yeah. um, There were a lot of bad things in the whole situation and we can, we can go through that because Natalie's cancer battle was, was pretty awful. The things that happened to her, but to, uh, you know, to to be there with your child and to see their eyes, them with their li- eyes open, but there's no life in it. Um, that's that's awful too. Um, but I think the hardest thing for me was the day that the doctor told her, Natalie, this disease is going to take your life. 
and to watch her literally just pull her hands up to her face and just burst into tears. Um, you know, obviously hard moments when you watch them lower their casket into the ground and you know that's final and things like that. But just watching her that day, um, I think between that and the second would be listening to my son on, we had a monitor in her room so we could listen to her and he was up there telling her goodbye and listening to him tell his best friend goodbye. Um, that's pretty close second. Yep. How does, uh, how does the word healing fit into your story? You know, I've, I've talked to a friend of mine who, whose husband passed away in a car accident and, and she made pretty abundantly clear that that was devastating, but she feels like losing a kid would for sure have been harder as she has two kids of her own. And she said that you don't, you don't ever get over something like this. You don't, you don't move on, but there does seem to be some sort of healing as a part of your story. And I don't think it's as simple as, okay, I'm healed from this, Right. but what, how does healing fit into your story? Well, what I always tell people is similar to what your friend did. You don't ever get over the death of a child. You just get through it. Yeah. Um, you know, death is the ultimate healing. So, um, Lord did answer my prayers for healing for my daughter, uh, just not in the way that I wanted him to, but he did heal her. As far as my healing, you know, it's been a process. It's, um, learning things about yourself. I'm a different person now in many ways, some ways good, some ways bad. Um, actually writing this book, the way that came about was an interesting way. And it's been more healing and therapeutic for me than I thought it would. Yeah. You know, it was raw and emotional, but it also pulls some things out. Um, you learn as you navigate some of the things like that were difficult for me. Celebrating the holidays are always hard. But her birthday is November 1st. She died November 24th. Thanksgiving's right there. Christmas was her favorite holiday. Then you go right into the season of when she was diagnosed. So in a lot of ways, between November and February, a lot of times I feel like I'm in this funk. Um, but through it all, there have been so many beautiful things that the Lord has shown me through it that that's what I hold on to. I call them the God hugs, the way that God blesses me. I find that if I turn my focus onto the beautiful things that have happened, because there's some things that have happened with since Natalie passed away that I can share with you, um, that you, there's they're, they're the way that the Lord is showing you, don't focus on the pain and the loss. Focus on the beautiful things that I'm bringing as a result of your daughter being with me. Because God's perspective, you know, is eternal. It's not temporal. So, right. you know, Natalie lives with him forever. And this is where we're passing through in order to bring people along with us when we get to that destination. So I have the hope of knowing I will see my daughter again one day. I yep. cannot imagine how devastating it would be to someone who puts their child in the ground and thinks that's it. Right. I can think of nothing more hopeless. Right. Right. So as I was reading a little bit about your book, the one of the descriptors says that you offer some practical insight on parents that are going through or have are going through what what you went through like what 
what kind of stuff is that? Like what kind of practical stuff is, is there that you offer? Well, like if you have the child that's going through it, you know, I talk about things like, you know, make sure that you're, you're talking to them, that you're asking them how they're feeling, that you're being honest with them. Obviously that's age appropriate. You you wouldn't tell a four-year-old the same thing you could tell an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old, but, um, you know, they know things are going on, and so you're better to tell them yeah. the truth. It doesn't have to be the unvarnished truth. Um, in terms of for to make sure you have a bag packed at all times because you don't know when you're going to go to the hospital, to make sure you have a meal coordinator, to have a site like a caring bridge that gives you one point of information that can disseminate, um, things like that. Yep. And and then on the other side of it, for people who are ministering to people, I right. tell you things that people say that they mean well. No one ever said anything to me where they meant to hurt me, but there were a lot of things that people said that hurt me. Right. Um, some people feel uncomfortable with grief, so they just don't acknowledge it, and they assume you know. And not ever acknowledging it is worse than saying the wrong thing. So I give some tips on things like that, um, how to offer practical help, like meals, yard work, errands, right. taking care of the other sibling. You know, that would be right. important, for example, in your family, because you don't want the other, your other three children, if something were to happen to one, to feel like mom and dad don't care about what's going on in their lives. Right, right. So it's been, um, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to keep all the years straight. It's been about 12 years since she passed away. It was 12 years in November. 12 years in November. When you're talking to somebody now and it's just something that you, it either naturally comes up in conversation because of what you're talking about, or it's something that you feel like you need to reference and you bring up the the fact that you lost your daughter 12 years ago. And, and this person doesn't know you that well, like what is, what is, a, what's the most kind thing that someone can say, not really knowing you, but hearing that, even though it happened 12 years ago, anyone who's ever been a parent knows that the pain's got to be fresh in, in many regards, like what's a, what's a good way to respond when someone says something like that? Well, for example, you know, one of the number one get to know you questions is, have any children, right? Right, right. So for me, I don't want to make someone uncomfortable by telling them my daughter died, but I don't want to dishonor Natalie's memory by pretending like she never existed. Right. So if someone says, well, do you have do you have any children? I'll say, yes, I have a son and talk about my son. And then I'll say, and I, I had a daughter who passed away when she was 13 from cancer. And they will usually say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I will let them know by my body language and my words that that's okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then if they want to keep asking me more about it, then I'll go into it. If they don't, if, if they feel uncomfortable and that's where they want to leave it, then I just transition the conversation into something about them or another topic of along the lines of what we were discussing so that they can move on and not feel any discomfort over it. Yeah. Out of curiosity, I mean, maybe somewhat of a bizarre question. Do you have a preference? Like, does it feel more natural for someone to ask more questions or would you prefer just to leave it there? I love talking about my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I find most interesting is people think that 
by not talking about or that's helping me. And when you tell me stories, like if you tell me a funny story or you tell me something she did or that touches my heart. It's like, I didn't forget my daughter died. I wake up every single day and remember my daughter died. And so when you tell me something or when you ask me about her, that makes me feel like she mattered because you want to ask. Right. Right. Did it take you, uh, well, I, you know, I just being super vulnerable or, or transparent, like just, and I kind of touched on this at the beginning of the conversation. I mean, just, just the thought of losing a child is, it's just so daunting. Like I, where I am right now, I can't imagine. I mean, and, and I'm just, here I am, uh, a, a pastor. I feel like I'm a decent dad, a decent husband. I feel like I'm a, a pretty decent guy. I, I know I would have to go continue in life, but I feel like that would be so hard. I feel like it would be so hard to be a good father to my kids. It would be so hard for me to be a a decent husband. Like everything just seems like, I don't know if I could do it. Like I would imagine you probably can relate to those sentiments before the diagnosis is there something like especially as 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 two people who believe in and hope and god's strength and stuff is there was there like a switch that went off that once you did have to be on this journey like there was a a peace that passes all understanding a, a, a strength in the time of trouble i mean was there something different that you now had access to that didn't take the pain away, but something that you did not have before entering into that journey? Well, for me, no, because I feel like I just look at God's faithfulness and his grace and how he worked in my heart to prepare me. And because I had peace from the very day that I found out she had cancer. And so I knew the Lord settled it in my heart that I knew what I wanted the answer to be, but I was going to be okay either way. And so I haven't had a switch. Now, what I can tell you is obviously some days are harder than other days. And I have what I describe as a, as a box. See, I'm really good at, I can compartmentalize, right? So I can push all this stuff over into a box and I can function. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that someone even said to me that, that hurt my feelings right after she died. Well, if you didn't act like you were doing okay, people would think you're, you're not doing as well as you are. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. How can anyone yeah. really be okay after losing a child? Right. But I, on the, on the surface, I get what this person was saying because I, I, people tell me all the time, you're a strong woman. Right. Well, I'm strong because the Lord carries me. So, but I can be, I can be talking to you one minute and something might, click something, connect something. I might say something about her and my little box might spring a leak. I don't ever know what that's going to be. And I don't ever know when it's going to be. And I have found that when you cry in front of other people, it makes them uncomfortable. So you try not to, but you can't help it sometimes. Now for me, when the sobs come, they calm. Like there are times that I could be standing in Natalie's room. Like we, we changed out carpeting last fall. And so we had left her room all the same. 
And so to move everything out and put the new carpet in, we're like, okay, we need to start packing her things up. So as we're packing her things up, I walked into her closet and I pulled out her favorite pair of black boots and I just stood there in the closet and it, I just, it just exploded. And I'm like telling myself, Kathy, you're torturing yourself. But, you know, but I had that good cry for a couple of moments and then it was gone. So it just, that's just sort of how my grief goes, but people grieve in different ways, you know? So for me, that's what works. Now, I will tell you to finish that story, we did not put things back in her room the way they were because we felt like that would make it more of a shrine. And um, so we didn't do that. But, and I, I do things I allow myself. Like I will sit in the floor with a photo album and go through her pictures because I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to not remember her or pay attention because it hurts too much. Right. And, you know, the one thing I do run away from a little bit is uh, at Christmas time we go away because it's just that was her favorite holiday. And when we're away, it still feels like Christmas, but it doesn't feel smothering. But right. when we're at home, it feels pretty smothering. And one of the things about the holidays is... Um, you find when you have a child that it's harder to be around family because all the cousins are there. Right. And the omission is glaring. As we reflect on the story of such great loss of a 13-year-old young lady, I asked Kathy if she would mind our listenership as we have a partnership with Donor C., We want to take this opportunity to honor Natalie in helping a young girl named Mary, who is currently 13 years old also. She lives in Sierra Leone, and at the age of six, she was forced to drink a chemical that damaged her esophagus, and she desperately needs a special type of nutrition. And as a Pastor With No Answers listenership, there's $394 to go in order to help Mary. This would also help her mother start a business that would be helpful in consistently providing the nutrition that Mary needs. And so in honor of Natalie, a life that was lost, we want to uh, try to help a 13-year-old Mary. We want to help save her life. And Natalie... If you're looking down from heaven right now, may this honor you, and I just rejoice at the thought of your parents and your brother being reunited with you forever and ever. Listenership, you can go to DonorC.com forward slash PWNA helps in order to help Mary get the nutrition that she needs and to help her mother be able to provide consistently for this special health circumstance. Right. Right. And you do the math and you imagine what she would be like. I'm, I'm assuming and, um, you know, how old she would be. And I would imagine you're probably going to do that for the rest of your life. Like every year you, you got to, think about how old she would be and and just wonder what her life would be like. Is that 
Yeah, she, well, she would have been 25 on November 1st this past yeah. year. So, yes, and her friends are starting to get married. You know, it was hard looking at prom pictures, you know, and she had some of her friends. They would write me and ask me to help them pick their classes. You know, they would, they'd ask me to help them pick their prom dresses, and it was, you know, it was such an honor for me. But at the same time, it's just a reminder, I'm not doing this for my own child. She's not here. Right. Um, and my son got married two years ago, and my daughter-in-law's family lives in Alabama, and so it was harder for them to do some of the logistical things on the wedding. And so she asked me to help her plan the wedding. Well, that was an amazing gift from the Lord that was not lost on me. But yeah. on the flip side, that was digging in some really raw parts of me because I wasn't ever going to get to do that for Natalie. And yeah. I know even at weddings, when I go to weddings, the part of the wedding that I always cry at is when the dad dances with his daughter. Right. Because right. I mourn that from for Tom, that he'll never right. get to experience that with her. Right. You know, you think about the fact that she'll never have a child. She won't get married. She won't have children. Right. right. How did your, did, did you guys have to be super intentional about some things when it comes to your marriage? I don't know the numbers, but... I'm pretty sure that there's a significant amount of marriages that don't survive losing a child. Right. Um, we feel very blessed by that. With Tom and I, we've always been somewhat different personalities. So we've always kind of taken different perspectives on things, but we usually we have the same goals. So we, we get there in different ways, but we get there. And it was wonderful to see how the Lord actually used that through this situation because like when Natalie first passed away, Tom let me talk about her all the time. That's his personality. You know, he just wanted to go down memory lane. Well, I'm like, I I can't, I can't do that. I'd be like you. I'm not there. And so I asked him, I said, okay, so where we are right now, you need that. And I want you to have that, but I can't do that. And you want to honor that. So let's let our friends step in the gap there. So his friends stepped in and would go out to dinner with him to let him talk about stuff like that. And then we got to a point where I was okay to talk about it and he was not needing to talk about it as much. So we just kind of leveled out. But God's been good. And then it seems like when I'm in a valley, like I might be kind of mopey about it's her birthday or mopey about, oh, do you realize, you know, the 24th is always a hard day of the month for me just because she died on the 24th. And, um, Tom's not, he seems to be up when I'm down. And right. like, for example, I'm, a, I'm emotionally attached to my home because my daughter passed away here. So leaving here, he'll say, you know, we should downsize. And I'm like, I, I don't want to not be here. Right. Whereas on the flip side, like when like the Lion King and stuff started coming out, he goes, we should go see that. It reminds me of when our kids were younger. And I'm like, it reminds me of when Natalie would climb up in my lap and hold on for dear life and cry. I can't do that. Right. So it's just differences. So we've right. just had to learn to just manage those differences and then just rely on the Lord. And that's what I'm grateful on is we're both strong in our faith and we both hold on to the hope that we'll, we'll all be reunited and reunited in heaven. Yeah. So she died at home. She died at home. Yeah. But and was she, that, go ahead. Well, so the, the way things progressed, just so you, so you know, I'll give you a little, it'll give you some more insight into Nally's personality 
you know, the before Natalie and, and the during Natalie. So once we found out the diagnosis, the first thing they had to do was put a port catheter in. And then they told her that her key, first chemo was going to be a pill. Well, Natalie couldn't swallow pills. We were always liquid Tylenol, liquid, 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 right? right. So the pills come and they're, she has to take 105 milligrams a day. And the pills are 100 milligram and 5 milligrams. And she's like, seriously? Like they couldn't stuff that 5 milligrams into that other pill. I have to take two right. of these. Right. So the first night... She could not swallow the pill. She could not swallow it. And I'm starting to panic because one of the things they told us is this is basically poison. It has to digest. It cannot she, It cannot melt in her mouth. Right. So we're trying everything, every trick anyone's ever taught you, right? Put it in a piece of bread, do it, whatever. Right. So I finally, I just I just got down beside the sofa and I just said, Lord, you got to help us. We, I, I don't even know what else to do. And at that moment, it went down course then she started crying and said i can't do this for 42 more days i'm like honey the lord just helps you show you there you can do it so we got the second one down a little bit easier and within five days she was throwing those pills in the back of her mouth and just knocking them down so that was our first obstacle and then in may we went in 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 april actually for an mri and the tumor wasn't shrinking but it wasn't growing either so they decided to put her on a different chemo so they put her on two um, IV meds. And so that was on May 12th. She had the first two doses or doses of each of those. So it was like five hours of infusion. She goes to bed on May 12th and wakes up May 13th and can no longer walk. So I don't know if it just the chemo hit the tumor and it just exploded, but it just took out the nerves and the part of her spine. So we go from a 12-year-old that has cancer to a 12-year-old who has cancer and is now in a wheelchair. So in spite of that, she finished out the school year as an honor student. She wanted to go in and take her end-of-grade tests and did made the highest scores on her end-of-grade tests. And then and at this in, point, was there hope for her life? Like, did she was she hanging on to hope that she would still live at this point? She hang on to hope, hung on to hope until she died. Yeah. yeah. And she so in June she got bed sores. Are you familiar with what those are? I think just just it's yeah, just I a really so. raw sore that you get on your bottom from being on on your bottom, like right. in a bed, right. and it was excruciatingly painful. And at that point, we had a hospice nurse. They used to come every Friday, a kid's path. So not like the one that where it's, you're going in at the end, but they would come check on her. And she had this one nurse named Jock that she loved. And he like, he was the only guy, I think he was there, only nurse, that, guy nurse that came. But he said, Natalie, I'm going to talk to you like an adult because I can tell you're smart, but in a way that a kid would understand. And she loved him because of that. So he told her what was going on. So about a month later, we had a -a Make-A-Wish trip, which I don't think I really, I should have known, but I didn't realize when you get a -a Make-A-Wish trip, it's usually means the prognosis is not good. So we went, we went on a trip to an international water park, which ended up being a mistake with her bed sores because the pain was off the charts and ended up not having a good time with that. And after we came back from that in August, she was hospitalized for a week. She just kept vomiting. She couldn't keep food down. So they they finally got her an IV, IV, got her fluids stabilized, and we got her back home. And within a week, she started doing it again. 
So we put her in the hospital in September. She was in the hospital the whole month of September. And before that, when she was well, um, I was doing a Bible study one time and I was writing down scripture verses on cards and she was, she's, Tom called her mini me. So she wanted to know what I was doing. And I told her, so she said, well, can I do it too? So we made a little art project out of it. We wrote her little cards out, put them in little photo albums. So when Natalie first was diagnosed, one of the first things she asked for was, can I have a new photo album and some cards? And she started texting all of her friends and asked them their favorite Bible verses. And she would, when I would come home from work each evening, she was writing them on cards and putting them in this little photo album. Yeah. So by the time September comes around and she's hospitalized, and literally she would lay, just lay there in the bed and vomit bile in a bucket all day long. They, they could not figure out what was wrong with her. There was one hour, one hour literally, each day where the pain and the anti-nausea medications would sort of come together and she would feel well enough to do something. And in that time, she would either play this little thing called Webkins, which was a little stuffed animal computer game. She would shop with the gift cards people gave her, or she would illustrate scripture verses. Yeah. that she had learned from memory because her book was not with her at the hospital. Yeah. So as bad as she felt, she was holding on to God's promises then. And she asked me one day, not long after that, she said, Mommy, why do you think God's not answering our prayers for healing? And I said, well, honey, you know, I don't know how to answer that. I know God hears all of our prayers. Um but for all I know, he may be answering my prayer that you won't succumb to peer pressure because you can't really be into things when you're in this state that you're in right now. So we just we won't really know till we stand in front of him one day. But what I do know is that he gave us the Psalms to help us. Every human emotion ever experienced is in the Psalms, you know. And if it if it would help, we can read those. And so she wanted to start reading one of those every day. Yeah. So at the end of September. I told I was leaving to the hospital one day because we didn't want to leave Will out on a limb. I would at the end of each because she couldn't walk. Tom had to carry her because by now right. she'd gained thirty pounds with steroids. She weighed as much as I did because I'm five feet tall, yeah. and so he stayed with her at the hospital. I would go home, spend the night with Will, get him off to school, go see her before work, go to work, then come back home, do the whole thing again. And so I was leaving to go home and she called me and was having a meltdown. And she said, mommy, please come back. And, and I calmed her down. I said, well, let me talk to daddy. So I told him, I said, when I come over there tomorrow morning, let's tell the doctor, let's just bring her home. So he let us bring her home and Two days later, she had a an appointment with a gastroenterologist, and he did one CT scan and found out she had ulcers at the base of her esophagus. Wow. And I'm like, she spent 30 days in the hospital vomiting. And the doctor, even at one point, one of the doctors asked me if, I, if it was all in her head. I said, you come in here and lay with her. I mean, that's probably the angriest I've ever been at somebody is like, you come in here and lay with her and tell me that's in her head. So we take her home, get her in a better emotional state. And then once he identified that, they realized that's what the chemo was doing to her. So they took her off the chemo. But they told us they hadn't, they did an MRI. And so we had a glimmer of hope because they said the tumor was swelling at the base. And they said it could be that she's in the window of radiation or it could be that the tumor is dying because they swell before they die. 
Now, I'm one of those people that would rather be pleasantly surprised than disappointed. So, right. you know, I tend to temper my expectations on things. I tell people on my epitaph one day is going to say manage your expectations. But yeah. um, so we um, we take her back in in November, on November 7th, and then for the MRI. And they call us back in on the 10th. And we should have known when we walked into the clinic, the oncologist said, well, let's just take Natalie back to get her counts done. You guys come in here to the conference room with me. So we go in there to sit down with him and Sharon, the family life specialist. And he said, um, Natalie has four to six weeks to live. And he said, at this stage, the only option we have available is an experimental drug We've given it to about four kids and only one shown any um, positive reaction and only extended his life for about two months. What do you want to do? And we're like, we don't want to put her through anything more. We right. just can't do that. Right. And he said, well, you know, he said, Natalie's smart. You know, she always asked me questions about her counts and things. And he said, so I feel like we need to include her in this. What do you think? I said, well, give us a minute. So he left and Tom and I, you know, after we could pull ourselves together long enough to pray, we prayed and we felt peace that we should do that. So we went into the room, the examining room, he pulled the chair up and got eye level with her. And he said, Natalie, this disease is going to take your life. And that's when she put her hands up. And he said, but there's one experimental treatment. And he told her all of the odds of it. And he said, but your parents have decided that they're going to let you choose. And she said, I want to do it. I want to live. So we left the doctor's office that day and we get in the car and she said, can I go watch Sydney play softball? That's her best friend. And I would have wanted to go home and crawl up in a ball and die. And uh, she wanted to go watch. She wanted to go live life to the best she could. So she had one chemo treatment. And then we were supposed to take her in on November 24th for the second one. I woke up that morning and something in me just said, don't go to work today. And so Tom had been sleeping in her room so he didn't have to come up and down the stairs. And he said, he got in the shower. He said, she didn't have a good night. So I went upstairs and sat with her and called the doctor. And he said, well, just bring her in when she feels better. So I took her... um, we took her in about 10, well, we got there about noon. I think it was, the point was at 10.30. We got there at noon. He listened to her breathing. He said, I'm not going to do an MRI. We're not going to give her chemo. He said, um, the last time she was here, the MRI showed shadows in her brain. And he said, this has just validated what I saw. It's moved into her brain stem, and she has two to seven days. So... We got her regulated on uh, three milligrams of morphine to take her home because we wanted to bring her home because honor her wish. The day she died, do you know who the hospice nurse was that the Lord sent to us? I think I can guess. Jock, the guy that came. So he comes and he asked us what was going on and uh, we told him and he he helps us get get her regulated. He said, have you told her goodbye? We said, well, we, we've told her we love her. We told her we're proud of her. We don't want to tell her goodbye because we don't ever want her to think we're giving up. And he said, well, sometimes when people are dying, they need you to let them go. Um, 
So he said, okay. So in the meantime, Natalie was laying in her bed and she kept, you know, she had a death rattle, so she couldn't talk anymore. She would point to letters on a board that we had. She kept pointing to her bedroom into that where Tom was sleeping in that hospital bed that she hated. We're like, what do you want, Nat? So we pick her up and we move her over there and she reaches up her hand and Tom grabs it and she shakes him off. She does that like three times and he says, I think she wants you. So I try to hold her hand. She shakes me off and then she starts fidgeting. So we're like, you're not comfortable. We're going to move you back to your bed. So we moved her back to her bed. And then as I was leaving, Jock said, go, go get her some Afrin. She sounds congested. So I drove to the CVS and the whole way there and back. I just said, Lord, please keep, please take her quickly. Please, please. I can't watch this anymore. And then, um, I told Tom, there's one more cemetery that I need to go look at. And I will tell you that they always say that, you know, in the first nine seconds, when you look at a house, whether you'll buy it or not, it's kind of the same way when you're looking for a cemetery for your kids. You'll just know this is not yeah. where she's supposed to be. Yeah. So Tom and I were supposed to go the next morning, and I just felt like it couldn't wait. So my fr- best friend came and got me, and Will arrived home right as I was leaving. I said, your sister, they've told her she has two to seven days, so you need to go tell her whatever it is you need to say to her. Go over to the look at the last cemetery, and it was perfect, absolutely perfect. And it had a funeral family, bit-run funeral home attached to it. So I put a deposit, get back home, walk in, and I can hear him talking to her, Will talking to her on the monitor, you're my best friend. And I just, uh So Tom said, well, you need to probably go up there and just see if she needs anything. So I walk in there, and Will's sitting on the side of the bed, and he's holding her left hand so I lay down beside her on the bed and hold her right hand Tom walked in and I said Natalie you've done more for the Lord in 13 years than most people do in 80 it's okay to go be with Jesus he'll take good care of you and within five minutes I looked up and I said I think she's gone and Tom checked her pulse and she had passed so we called Jacques, and he came over and said, tell me what happened. And we told him, and he said, you know, I didn't want to say anything earlier, but I've been around a lot of kids when they're dying, so I knew death was imminent. He said, but I think she was trying to tell you she saw the Lord or angels or something, and that's what she was pointing to. And Kathy, when you told her it was okay to go be with Jesus, she left. Yeah. So as a parent, at a time where you feel like your child should be the most afraid to see how the Lord cared for her. And she was at such peace. Um, it just brings my heart a lot of peace and a lot of joy. Yeah. So this book chronicles the quote, amazing ongoing legacy of a life that in 13 short years left a lasting impact of Courage, love, unwavering faith, and unexpected joy on countless others. I'd love for you to just briefly, especially the joy part, Mm -hmm. let us in on that. Well, you know, in spite of of everything she went through, Natalie kept her sense of humor through the whole thing. Um, So that part was beautiful in and of itself. But when Natalie was in the sixth grade, she became friends with a young lady named Giovanna. And they would they would sit and talk, and Giovanna had been 
part of a what I would call a mean girl group. And so she Natalie was new to that school because we had moved. And so she would come and sit with Natalie and ask her, like, what what do I say to them? And Natalie would tell her, you know, you, you don't you can't don't let them bother you and don't let them see that what they're saying is bothering you. And so Giovanna said she would tell me things like that. And I would ask her like, well, how, where do you have that peace like that? And she said, well, you know, I go to this youth group and, you know, my faith, you know, I love Jesus is my savior. And so Giovanna kept, she wanted to go to a youth group, a church with a youth group and the church they went to didn't have one. And she would go home and say, you know, mom, I want to go to a church with a youth group. We already have a church. So when Natalie passed away, Giovanna was upset because she didn't get to say goodbye to her. And so a year later, a year after Natalie passed, I took Giovanna to dinner for her birthday. And she told me that, she said, I had a dream on New Year's Eve that Natalie came back and said, I know that you're sad because you didn't get to say goodbye to me. And so I come back. Jesus allowed me to come back to say goodbye to you. So she said, we did all the things that we did together. And she said, she told her, she said, you know, don't, don't worry. You know, I'll look after you. And so she woke up and she said, mom, you know, I really want to find a church with the youth group. Well, honey, we have a church. We're not changing. About two months later, her mother had a dream. And in the dream, Natalie was standing next to Jesus, and she had a cross in her hand, and she walked over and handed it to her mother and said, this is for you. And her mother woke up the next day and said, honey, we're going to find a church with a youth group. So they started going to this church, and Giovanna accepted the Lord as uh, Christ as her Lord and Savior. And so that's joy to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the cards that Natalie has drawn, um, a young lady, I had a colleague in the United Kingdom, and I went over to visit, and she was sick, and I took her little gift, and I stuck a pack. I took Natalie's um, drawings and made them into little note cards, and I put them in the bag, and she wrote me a year later and said, you know, I use these cards all the time to send to my friends that need encouragement or that don't know the Lord, and I'm running low. Would you send me some more? And so I'm like, my daughter sharing her faith in a country she never visited. Um, we got a package from someone in Italy who said, I saw a video of your daughter on the web, and because she smiled through her whole illness, it left an indelible mark on my heart. Here's a bear and a flower. Would you please put it on her grave for me? Um, so when you, the things that you see that happen like that are those God hugs. And that's, that's where the joy comes in because you see that even though she's not here, the Lord is still using her to touch lives. Um, one of the young men that sang in the praise band at her funeral, who went to church with us, when he got married, they started attending a different church. Um, so his he got married, and he and his wife wanted to find their own church. And so they had a child, and then with their second child, she had a miscarriage. And he said, you know, he called to tell me the story. He said, you know, Kathy, I hope this is going to encourage you. He said, but, you know, my wife has just had a really, really hard time. And I don't know how to, I didn't know how to relate to it because I'm a guy, and I didn't really understand the whole thing where, you know, you didn't have the baby. And he said, so she, one morning I wake up and I go downstairs in the kitchen and she's like happy and humming. And I'm like, 
what happened? She's like, well, I had a dream last night. And he said, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, Noah, which is what they named their the baby that they miscarried, was standing there with a little girl. She was about 11 years old and had dark hair and freckles. And she said, Noah's okay. He's with me. We're with mm-hmm. Jesus. We're at Disney World. And he said, well, what was her name? And she said, Yo, Yokes. And he said, Natalie Yokely. And she said, yeah, that's it. And I told him, I said, well, what you don't realize is a year after Natalie died, I walked through, there was a family at at my company, their five-year-old granddaughter had a brain tumor and she ended up passing away. And on the night of the funeral, I woke up and I saw a vision of the Peter Pan ride at Disney World. And I don't know if you know that ride, but you kind of hang down and you can see the lights of London. And in Nally's voice, I heard her say, Mommy, Brooklyn's okay. She's with me. This is what we see every day. Wow. And I told Michael, I said, you know, what an amazing God we serve, that the thing in our parents' minds is one of the happiest places we can take our children. And our finite way of thinking is Disney World, that the Lord uses my daughter twice to bring healing when children have gone to heaven. Wow. You writing this book reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I thank you for your bravery to write the book, and we'll make sure people know where to get it, and thank you for the tribute of Natalie on this podcast. I feel honored to uh, to be able to have an episode that honors your daughter. Wow. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.